Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. I think something I'm guilty of is the whole unhealthy productivity, glamorizing productivity, like making an Insta story being like, just spend the last 15 hours working on my desk straight. Oh my God, I'm so tired and feeling so cool <laughs> that I literally worked all day and I didn't see the, the light of the sun. Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and mental health insights. I am your host, Benoit Kim, a trilingual Korean American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of mental health by talking to the most fascinating humans I can possibly find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Maya GV. Maya is a fashion YouTuber, the founder of Maya Zine, a fashion magazine for the people, and a freelance artist. With her unique approach to fashion insights, Maya amassed a large following of over 54,000 subscribers, and her popular videos receive anywhere from hundreds of thousands of views to millions of views at 19 years old. Yes, you heard that right. Maya started her creative and YouTube channel at the impressively young age of 13 years old. Currently, Maya is taking a gap year and spending her time in her home country, Portugal, to either catching the rays of sunlight or refining her craftsmanship and expanding her magazine's presence globally. Maya, welcome to the show. Hi, Benoit. Well, thank you. So, you started your YouTube channel at seventh grade, which is crazy to say out loud, and now it has a great following. So that tells me that you've always had some sort of an entrepreneur spirit inside of you since you are young. So, like, what about starting from nothing to something excites you so much? Starting from nothing to something. I think we all obviously start out from nothing.、Um, and when I look back, I think I, I was always doing some sort of little business when I was younger. I remember. Me and my sister would throw a circus in our backyard and ask our family members to pay for an entrance or like selling bracelets. So I always was very interested in doing something that, don't, that would then generate money and I would save the money and like think of what I could do with it.、Um, so there was always like that little bug inside my head. But I think when you have a passion, and I believe everyone has a passion. We want to make our lives out of it. And so, at least for me, it was very natural to see something that I thought was so cool. For example, YouTube that was literally starting out when I started in seventh grade back in 2016.、Um, see the potential. And as a seventh grader that really has 
nothing major to think about or do in her life. Be like, these people are growing. They're making content. Um, they're making money. Because I'm, I'm not going to be one of those YouTubers that says I just started it because I loved it. I loved it. I was recording videos and editing them before I was posting them. But I also loved the fact that I thought in my head, maybe this could be bigger in the future and generate some sort of career or, or something that would generate money. Because that was also something I'm very passionate about. So I think when you're very passionate about something, you will want to make your whole life about it. And so obviously money is a big part of it as well. And with that comes entrepreneurism. And I think it's just a matter of starting. We were talking before the, the podcast started about how it's hard to know something, but then emotionally interiorize it. And that is very true because I started my channel in seventh grade and even though I was growing bit by bit, and when I say bit by bit, I'm saying like 10 to 10 subscribers, 100 subscribers, nothing major. It was very frustrating to be working weekly on videos for years and feel like I wasn't having the growth that maybe I imagined it or expected it. And if we listen to any YouTuber, and now I'm giving the example of YouTube because it's the one that's closest to me, we will hear everyone say, basically the same story. I did it for how many, how much time in one day, for some reason, a video picked up and that was the start of it for real. And I just had this faith that, and this is like literally my life motto or my career motto that if I failed, quote unquote, failed enough times, I would eventually achieve what I was looking for. For some people, it will be easier to interiorize that. For some people, and especially I believe in our generation, we are so used to having instant gratification that it's really hard to think that we have to do this for a period of time that we don't know how long it will be. It could be one week, it could be 10 years for the expectation or the thought that maybe it, could lead, it can lead to something. But that was literally my mentality. I was just, if I fail enough times, if I work enough, if I make enough videos, chances are one video will eventually took off, taken, and it took five, six years. It took a lot of time, but I just kept doing it because I loved it. And I think that's also what separates people that are doing it for the passion and people that are doing it for other reasons. It's something that you have to do for a long time, most likely, before you actually have the gratification, the results. Oh, one of my more recent episodes with Ross Raddy. He's also a YouTube influencer. He's a professional arborist, home gardening expert. And one of the big topics we talked about is everyone nowadays and their mothers want to turn passion into profit. And I asked him about what, what, what does he think about that? Because he grows like fruit trees, he sells figs, and he's in his 30s and nobody believed in him. And that's what he said. Well, to turn passion into profit, you must have passion. Simple mm -hmm. as that. And that was the end of that question. And I was like, and I think a lot of times people focus on, oh, how can I make money? How can I monetize X, Y, and Z? How can I make this creative avenue into my nine to five full-time job? But a lot of times the underlying ingredient of passion is missing, which obviously you had the most unadulterated, pure passion at age 13, because kids are more pure and innocent, I think. And, but I find that very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to note that I feel like we're living in a stage where entrepreneurism and entrepreneurs are very looked upon and it's 
like everyone and their mothers needs to be an entrepreneur. It's almost, it's actually trendy. And I don't think in order for you to follow your passion and monetize it and make it a career, you have to be an entrepreneur. Someone might love to be a dentist and work at a clinic. And that doesn't mean you're not following your passion. So for anyone out there that has a passion and is studying or applying it, but isn't actually having their own business, that is also applying your passion. Making your own business isn't the only way you can be happy and fulfilled um, work-wise. Yeah, I think passion and how it manifests looks different for everyone. So that's a great point. So I want to zoom in on what you said earlier, Maya, that you trust in yourself, right? You went through a lot of seasons of doubts, a lot of questioning, like, oh, I'm pouring 80, 90 hours every single week producing high quality content, but nobody's checking it out for years on end until, of course, a universe, God answered your call and made you this explosion. But we'll get there down the road. So I want to focus on the topic of self-trust versus delusion. What I mean by that is, as you said, a lot of YouTubers have the similar stories of, oh, it took me X amount of years until YouTube algorithm picked me up and started recommending my videos and whatever the story is, but it's very similar. But then I think a lot of people might ask, but Maya, how do you know that your channel and your content is actually good? People actually want to watch it and you're just missing on the timing versus Maya, how do you know you're not delusional, right? Because there is a difference between self-trust and delusion. And I think one effective way to counter that is having a circle of trust people, like people you trust to give you unedited, full criticism to really trying to help you out versus everyone's saying yes. Oh, Maya, your channel's so good. I love your content. Everything looks great. I believe in you. Uh, so like, how do you approach that process? Um, I think there's definitely two big factors. And the first one is the people around you. Um, something I would always ask when someone would come up to me and be like, oh, I saw your latest video. I really liked it. My first comment would always be like, great. What do you think I could better? Like, when did you start losing your focus? And you were like, maybe I'll click out. Um, I would always try to ask for that because when you're editing a video for 10 hours plus and you've watched it so much times, you're either so obsessed with it that you can't even see flaws or you're so sick of the video because you've seen it so many times that you'll never have an unbiased opinion. So I think having that circle of friends, family, whoever it is, um, besides your subscribers or whoever is watching it is very important. And then something I would always ask myself and some, and especially in times where I was editing a video that maybe I wasn't really feeling like it was going in a good path, I would just ask myself if this was posted by my favorite YouTuber or a new YouTuber, would I watch it? I would always go back to my channel and try to evaluate it as if it was another person's channel. Because I'm going to be honest, sometimes I'll make videos that I loved making, but they aren't my usual go-to to watch. For example, I make my street style videos where I interview people in the streets and ask them what they're using, wearing, and I'm not the type of person that consumes a lot of that content. So then there's the timeline between do I not watch that content because I not my favorite content to watch or am I making content that is invaluable? And for example, using this as an, a specific example, I realized that the reason why I wasn't watching those videos is because people literally just ask other people what are they wearing but based on their brand. So I'm wearing this t-shirt from X brand, these shirts from X brand, and that's why it doesn't captivate me. Now, when the videos are more related to the actual fashion or to why they're wearing that, 
or how did they thought of building their outfit, then I'm interested. So when you look at your channel as if you were looking to someone else's channel, I think that would also really, really help if you don't have that much trust in the people around you. Yeah, I want to make this more tangible for a lot of listeners since most of the listeners aren't YouTubers or content creators. What Maya is saying that you can, whatever avenue of job content you're doing, whether you're working in a business setting as a business analyst, you're doing some sort of a deliverables per timeline, you can always ask yourself the same question that Maya just did is if it were my boss or if it were my senior VP or if it were someone that I respect, like my mentor, how would they approach this deliverables? How would they approach this auditing or how would they approach this craftsmanship? And I think having this bird's eye view, as I call it, is very helpful because it's sort of the best way to fight against your own biases that you're talking about, right? Because when you believe in yourself so much, like I said, self-trust and delusion is a very fine line. You have a blinders on and you just don't see it. You're like, oh, I'm the best. My content is going to do well. But a lot of times, most YouTubers don't make it, right? Many YouTubers who made it takes them about three, four, five years. But 95% of plus YouTubers never hit that magical moment because they don't have enough confidants or people telling them. So I think that's a very useful thing. But I just wanted to extrapolate for a bigger than just YouTube space. Exactly. And I just want to know something you, that you said that is very important for me, which is people that you respect, especially when you're in the public eye publishing something online, but even in other avenues, obviously, there will always be a lot of people commenting um, giving their feedback and it's very easy for us to take in everyone's feedback try just focusing obviously if your followers if we're talking about social media are a lot of them are commenting they liked it or a lot of them are commenting that something was wrong we should take that in consideration of course but focus on the people that you actually respect you might have a teacher or a colleague or a friend or a mother that you don't quote unquote respect in the sense that you don't want and I don't want this to sound bad, but you don't want what they have or you wouldn't want to build the lifestyle they have. You don't respect them work-wise. And as much as it's important to hear and think about what people tell you, take in consideration especially the feedback of people you truly respect. You respect who they are, how they are in life, um, the person they are, etc. Yeah, great, uh, great sign though. It's, it's based saying that you need to contextualize the baseline of the feedback and advices you seek. Like a concrete example is I'm, I'm a podcaster and now I'm working on YouTube space. I wouldn't ask advice to a non-podcaster about podcasting. Like I'm sure they, they mean well, they're going to give me a series of advices, but I'm going to ask, well, have you ever recorded a podcast episode? If they're like, no, then why the fuck would I listen to what they're saying? Because it's exactly. irrelevant. It's not a disrespect thing. It's just irrelevant. And we have very different baselines, so it's very important. Yeah, and maybe they can give you feedback, sorry, about the actual podcast as a viewer. Maybe they can add value in another way, but in a lot of ways, they won't be able to give you value because it's impossible. They just, they're not there. Yep, the, the gap between consumer and producer is very, very big, but it's, it's the nuances we're speaking here. I want to follow up and zoom in on a series that you just talked about, right? One of the series that you do on your YouTube channel, it's actually one of the most viral videos you've had is the street style where you go onto the streets of New York City or wherever you are and asking people about fashion styles or about their choice of fashion. I also know that you are an introvert 
and you don't just go up to talk to random people like I do or maybe some other extroverts do. So what has that series of interviewing strangers on the streets of New York City taught you about maybe fear and discomfort? It's funny that you classify me as an introvert because for probably the first 16 years of my life and take in consideration that I'm 19, I always considered myself definitely an extrovert. I loved going out at night, going to concerts, being with friends, meeting new people, talking to people. And I still feel that, but quarantine definitely took a toll on that. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm living in a place now where I don't have many friends, but I find myself just wanting to be at home, wanting to work, wanting to make videos and not being in the confusion as much as I w wanted to. But I think that when it comes to literally approaching strangers in the streets with a camera on their face, even an extrovert would have a little bit of trouble with that. So my, my biggest mindset when I'm doing that is definitely not overthinking. I will wake up when I was in New York, for example, I would wake up, get myself on the train with a camera, go to the fashion college or whatever, and just start talking. Like, I wouldn't even think about what I would say. I knew I liked that person's outfit, for example. I would just go up to them because if I don't go up to them, they'll just leave and I won't even have the chance to talk to them. And I would just start talking until I threw myself into the sharks. I knew I was taking my chances. And if I got a no, because I'd say I get like 50% no's, just throwing myself in there without even thinking about it. Because if you think too much about it, the chances that you're actually going to do it just keep getting shorter and shorter as time passes. Yeah, that sounds similar to when the founder of Humans of New York, he was asked about, you know, because that's one of the, that's what he did professionally, right? He would literally speak with millions of New Yorkers and get their stories. Uh, for anyone who hasn't checked out or know about Humans of New York, uh, strongly recommends. It's not as popular now, but years ago, it was a sensation. And that's what he said. You can't get caught up in thinking about, oh, what I want to say, what questions do I ask? You just find the person that you think is in a good mood or who is maybe potentially likely to talk to you and you just talk. And I think having this human to human connections and this, especially now, everyone's, especially in New York City, everyone's moving, walking super fast. If you walk slow, they will yell at you. That's why I don't really like New York City. I love the food culture, but, and I think what you did is what allowed you to be successful is you have the ability to not get caught up in inside of your head. So speaking of inside of your head, how do you manage the external or internal chatter? Like whether it's doubts, whether it's questioning, whether it's all the mental fuckery that comes with being a content creator, especially at such a young age. Like how do you make sure the external noises do not always get to you and you can always stay clear on what you do or what you want to do? I think the fact that I'm not just doing one full thing helps a lot. I definitely think that if I were just doing YouTube or just doing freelance work, I would get inside my head a lot more. The fact that, for example, right now I have my mornings for my YouTube, my afternoon for my work allows me that there's more going on than just one thing. So there's not as much space to overthink or give space to those thoughts because it's so many different topics, so many different things that are going on. Um, there's definitely better faces and maybe worse faces. Like in a short period example, in one day, if I go out to the city and I start interviewing a lot of people, the day will be great. But if I have a day where the first person with a cool outfit passes, 
and I'm in my head like, you're not gonna bother them. They don't care about what you have to say. Why are you literally interrupting your day and making them get late to class? If that happens on the first one and I don't act upon it, it's gonna be hard to act upon on the second one and on the third one. Um, so the way that I deal with all of that is either jumping on into whatever I know I want to do, focusing on the why, because I might be, I had my first viral video and obviously having a viral video, I got a, a ton of feedback and a ton of it was negative feedback. So the reason how I deal with it was, first of all, I think it was even harder because it was a street style video. So the negative feedback wasn't even towards me. It was towards the other people. And I felt very uncomfortable making people go in a public way, be published on YouTube and then get hate because of me, quote unquote. But if I just think about, do I respect those people? Do I know those people? If I think about what, I, what am I doing this? Because a lot of times criticism won't even come from outside. It will come from inside as we were just, just saying. If I focus on the why of I'm doing it, and if I try to think, would my higher self do this like this? What would I think of myself if I weren't myself? Those are the only tips or ways that right now I use to deal with it because sometimes it can get a bit overwhelming, but just got to think about the purpose of what you're doing and how do you want it to grow in the future. Yeah, how do you, this is a personal curiosity. Like, How do your parents or family think about you putting yourself out there and having so much exposure online? Because like in America, one of the demographics or population with the highest suicidal rate is adolescent girls. Like girls mm -hmm. in their 10 to 13 years old, like the middle school age when you started YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much negativity, as you said, like the body image, just a lot of keyboard warriors hiding behind a screen and attacking and saying horrible things to these young girls who are very innocent and who just don't have the cognitive maturity to process or as you do, you're like, oh, do I care about these comments? Do I respect them? No, then ignore that. A lot of younger people don't have that mindset or ability. But anyway, to you, like, how do your family or people around you feel about Maya GV, someone they knew, their daughter, their granddaughter, their niece? They're like, oh, man, now she's public. She's online. She's putting herself out there. It definitely started slowly. Um, I would say that from seventh grade up to ninth, tenth grade, even my mom would ask me to see all of my videos before you were published so that she could give her OK of what I'm putting out on the Internet. Sometimes she would even say, I think this video is a bit boring. I don't know if you should post this, <laughs> which wasn't very helpful, mom. Um, so that was the way they would control the content before they were published. And then I just guess in the beginning when I was younger, no one was really watching it. So I wasn't getting hate or any of that. If I were to have uh, grown more in terms of numbers at that age, they probably would have been more careful or conscious about it i think because they knew no one was really literally watching like maybe 10 100 views and they weren't hearing me complain about anything they were very comfortable with that um and i don't think they view it as my agp is now public or is now on the internet because when you're dealing with someone and you're close with someone even if they have a blog channel which is one of the most personal types of channels it will show 10, 5, 1% of your life. So I think no one that actually knows you will actually see that as you being public because there's so many things that don't go online. The majority of things don't go online. 
I think that's the way they picture it. They picture it as something that I really like to do. They watch the videos, but I don't think they've ever thought about it in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. But in a way, I think it's a blessing in disguise that you didn't really get big, quote unquote, mm-hmm. on YouTube until you became of mature of age, right? Yeah, so I, agree. I think that's a huge blessing in disguise. So let's talk about expectations and reality. So you just talked about vlogging is very common and very prevalent, right? Everyone walks around with a camera, even though I know vlogging is a very awkward lifestyle. Just think about you carrying a giant camera. It's very awkward and not unnatural, but tremendous respect for people who do it. So I think a lot of people, when they view certain professions or certain vloggers or certain YouTubers, they have their expectations of, oh, I'm sure that's what Maya GV is like in real life. But that's all assumptions and speculations from a limited computer-sized window or your phone screen. That's the 1%, 5%, 10% versus the reality of what actually Maya GV is or what she does. I ask that because you have multi-dimensional identities. You're a YouTuber. You're a founder of a magazine, great play on words of magazine, tongue twister. And you're also a freelance artist. You do a lot of video editing. And that's how we actually met a month ago. Freelance artist or YouTuber has a lot of glamour and a lot of cool things attached to it. But the reality is not all expectations. It's not just all peaches and sunshines and rainbow. So can you portray a more realistic pictures of some of the identities that you do feel free to pick either freelance artists as a video editor or as a youtuber i think something i'm guilty of is the whole unhealthy productivity glamorizing productivity like making an insta story being like just spent the last 15 hours working on my desk straight oh my god i'm so tired and feeling so cool that i literally worked all day and i didn't see the, the light of the sun Um, that's the part that I think I'm guilty of is probably not that I think people will feel that way, but I think someone could feel, and maybe this is more for my Instagram even, because right now my zine, my YouTube platform is very focused on fashion. So there's not really much space to talk about personal stuff, but I think something that would maybe cause people to think would be, whoa, should I be working this much? Is it, am I a failure because I'm not working a 15 hour day? Things like that. Um, But then something I'm very careful about actually is when it comes to body image or perfectionism. I remember even when I was like a couple years ago in some videos, I I wouldn't wear makeup because I didn't want my image to always look like the most glamorized, perfectioned image. So I would literally not force myself, but make a point to not wear makeup in every single video. Or if I was filming a lookbook, I would make a point, for example, my biggest insecurity is my belly. And I think uh, one or two years ago, I started like making fun of it in the videos just because it's so natural and so normal. And as a small content creator or a big content creator, I think when you put ourselves online, I'm not sure if it's our responsibility or not, but it kind of ends up being our responsibility of what we put out there. And I especially like to think about younger audiences, as you were saying, that are more vulnerable to all of these messages that we're saying or just showing through images. So in that sense, I always like to make funny Insta stories being like expectation reality of a beach photo, for example, just because I think it's important to normalize that. Even the 
and now really focusing on body images. I love when I see an influencer I follow being like, I just ate a bowl of ramen and now I feel like <laughs> I'm pregnant. <laughs> so I, I think the thing I'm less guilty of is the body image or portraying a physical aspect that is more perfect. But then in terms of the lifestyle of a freelancer, I think sometimes I glamorize it too much. And I think that's something I'm working on because as much as I love what I do and I love it so much that my tendency is to be like, why isn't everyone doing this? This is awesome. We're all so different and we cannot forget that we're all so different. And I was hearing a podcast the other day when the girl was saying, I live to work, but I have a tremendously amount of respect for the people who work to live because I know with my profession and she's a YouTuber, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I didn't live to work. But I know with a lot of other people, they wouldn't be able to be happy if they didn't work to live, for example. So I think it's very important to show the downfalls, not in a negative way, but in a realistic way of what we do, especially when we're putting ourselves out there. Um, because as a freelancer or as a content creator, it's so easy to just show the highlight reel of things, to show the new client you have, to show what you bought, to show what you have. And that's the 1% I was talking about. Yeah, you are mature beyond your years because I think you went through a lot of seasons of life because being in an entertainment business or fashion business or being a content creator is not easy whatsoever. The tremendous hard work that goes in behind the scenes, the loneliness, the doubts, the questioning, the guessing of myself that happens on a daily basis. So I respect how mature you are and the perspective that you have, especially on your ability to like, like make fun of your belly, which is like my partner, she is almost 30 and she's fit. Like she's a physician herself. She works out. <laughs> And she still has a lot of self-consciousness about her belly mm -hmm. after we devour pizza or something, right? And I know that's one of the hardest thing and the most vulnerable thing a woman can do online mm -hmm. is making fun of your body image. So I respect that very, very much. Yeah. Which doesn't mean I won't tighten my belly the second after I think Instagram. <laughs> when I go out, I'm not perfect. But at least trying to put the image out there, I think, is something that's very important to me, especially because I know how important it is to see other people doing it. Yeah. And another interesting thing is, I don't know if you mean this, but I sense this thread. So I went to, I did my master's at UPenn, right? An Ivy League grade school. And when I was a little bit younger, like my mid twenties, I would tell people like, oh, I went to Penn to uh, subtly suggest that I'm smart, all these things. But then mm -hmm. through years, I realized I'm actually putting myself in a box of smart Benoit. And that means I have to live up to the expectations of being smart all the time. So I, I realize mm -hmm. it's exhausting. Sometimes I just want to cuss, shoot the shit, you know, say dumb things. I don't want to be, always be articulate or whatever. So I start, I stopped sharing that because, mm -hmm. you know, people could always tell because competency speaks and you don't always have to put yourself under any boxes, whether, as you said, perfect makeup, perfect belly every single day, then people is going to expect you to have a perfect body every single day because that's all you mm -hmm. show. But by being vulnerable you're actually allowing people to say okay we don't have to be perfect every day and you're actually liberating yourself from a box of perfect face perfect body whatever that box may be yeah i think it's definitely easier to do that in a content way because you can literally schedule when you're where you make it for a video when you're not then in real life i think it's very different um, and I'm actually going through a phase of learning a lot about 
how I portray myself in a way that I want people to think I'm smart, for example, because growing up, I had very good grades. And so something that I felt like defined who I was and how quote unquote good I was were my grades. And I'm taking a gap year and I'm 19. So every time I meet someone that I haven't seen in a bit, or even my neighbor today, they're like, oh, so what are you studying? And as soon as I say that I'm not studying, you see their face changing, right? You almost can hear what their brain is, change, is saying, which is something that I was definitely not used to because I had really good grades and I would define myself by my grades. So I instantly feel the need to be like, oh, but I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I went here and I went there because I know how much I want people to think something about me, which I'm not saying I'm going to stop doing soon. It's hard, but I don't think it's necessarily good to give that much importance to some, what someone random thinks. So a part of me now is discovering how to value myself or where to put my value in, which my instant way to put it is in what I do for work or what I do for my zine, which is also work. And then I think the next step after that is going to be something you've asked me um, when we were preparing for this interview, which is who am I? without saying, what do I do? Because I 110% define myself by what I do. And I love what I do. And I'm happy with that. But I also don't want to fall in that trap of putting my value in something that maybe isn't that big, or maybe it's a box. And I don't even know that it's a box. Yeah, that put a smile on my face because once again, your introspections and your ability to think about multiple things all at once at age 19. I mean, when I was your age, I was getting shit-faced and uh, waking up with no memories of the previous night. I was not thinking about how to carry myself, what basket do I want to put my values in and all these things. And it's a lifelong journey, Maya. Like, I hate when people say, oh, I worked through the imposter syndrome. What do you mean? That's going to hit you in your 30s. That will hit you in your 40s, 50s, 60s. And whatever syndrome, comparison syndromes, imposter syndromes, it's a lifelong process, like seasons of life. It comes and goes. But obviously, awareness is the first step. So I respect you deeply for that. But I do want to focus on something that you said, your workaholic tendencies or your proclivity, your tendency to put your basket of values and your worth in productivity. I struggled with that years ago, and a lot of people struggle with that. Why do you feel like you always have to work so hard? Because in our qualitative process, you told me that you're going to go back to school in New York City, but you have to, air quote, to do college online because there's no way you will leave any of your work behind, whether it's editing, freelancing. And college is a relatively stress-free period for a lot of people to explore and get to know them in the process. It's a very fun time because after college, shit gets very real for you, right? Uh, but you're willing to bypass that for the sake of work. So why do you feel like you have to work so hard all the time? I, I probably, I don't remember, but I don't think I saw it that way when I decided to take the gap year. Simply because what I was doing, I was having so much fun that for me, that was the fun. The fun wasn't going to college. But then obviously it's still work. Um, I'm not sure there's a single reason why I like, or I feel like I have to work so much. But if we take out money and if we take out the fact that I love doing what I do and so obviously I'll probably want to work more than the average person I just have this tendency in myself to always want to be doing something productive like 
one of the quote unquote arguments I have with my boyfriend is he'll be literally talking to me about something and my brain will be like, okay, while he's talking, can I like tie my shoelace? Can I write an email <laughs> real quickly and listen to him? Like stupid things like that. Or even if I finish work at 8 p.m. and I only go to bed at 11 and I'm like, hey, I have these many hours, but what would I do? Like someone asked me the other day, what's your hobby? And I was like, oh, my hobby is making videos. They're like, no, but what's your hobby? And I was like, what do you mean? I cook. I like to cook, but I have to cook. I read half an hour a day. Does that count as a hobby? So I think it's hard to put it in that perspective because I love what I do so much that if I quote unquote, end my work day, I'll probably want to start getting an advance in another video. But I don't think that's, <laughs> but I don't think that long term that will be helpful, especially, I think it's even easier for me. And maybe I'm going on a tangent because right now I'm living in a place where, as I mentioned, all of my friends moved abroad. So it's easier for me to not lose, I was going to say lose, spend so much time with friends because I don't have that much going on in that sense. So I'm still finding the balance. I'm still finding the purpose in other things. Um, I think college is going to, for me, it's going to be different than for most people because I'm literally just doing it to learn and to get my bachelor's. I am not doing it for the college life. And I definitely ask myself if that's something I think I'll regret. And I think the fact that I ask myself if I'll regret it will probably make it easier to not regret it because it wasn't like I didn't even think about it. Um, I think my parents, for example, are probably concerned about that social aspect and about me getting into the real world right after college, right before college and being in the real world, quote unquote, during college. But that's going to be a process. And I think I'm going to have to learn it the hard way. I definitely don't want to burn out or get into any of those things because then I won't be able to work. <laughs> but it's definitely a process and I, I'm not sure I know a lot about it yet because I'm just in a very productive, maybe not even healthy productive mindset right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. You said, I don't want to burn out. So because burnout <laughs> will make me lose time to do more work on what I love. That, that's funny. But I mean, there's no judgment, right? Because I mean, sure. Yeah. Yes. Burnout is bad. And I want to put this disclaimer. People have this fallacy that you can't burn out if you're doing something you love. That's not true. I love podcasting. You love video editing. I love working as a clinician in a mental health capacity in a clinic, but we still burn out because it's a psychological thing. Yeah. It, sure. If you love what you do, it helps a lot, but that does not mean that you don't have a limit to what you do. So hopefully through seasons of life, through what you do, you can find out the tempo and the groove to, um, to see what fits, what doesn't fit, what serves, what doesn't serve. And through that process, you'll find a balance that writes for you because there's no balance that everyone says there is. It, it's, it looks different for everyone. So why do you, um, because obviously your channel always still comes down to editing, right? The underlying theme of being an editor, like Take this into two directions, if you like, because I know your fashion is a mainly digital art. So what about video editing or graphic design or digital art? What about those that fascinate you and you love it so much since such a young age? So the, the reason or way that I started freelancing is very funny because I made videos for four, 
years and I never thought about doing video editing for other people. I was just focused on my own channel, which I think most artists are. We're very focused on our own art and we really want our own art to succeed. So it's almost like thinking about helping other people with their art is taking out from ourselves, from our identity, from our ego even. So in quarantine, I wanted to make a series um, because I, I, I really liked editing and I know I liked editing because most YouTubers, the first task they'll delegate when they grow is editing. They don't like it. I always liked it and it was a very creative process for me. It's like every video was a different project aesthetically and everything. So I wanted to make a series where I would try to edit other people's, other YouTubers' videos and make like collabs. And so the first person I reached out, she literally responded to me and was like, I'm literally looking for an editor and I follow your channel. I really like your editing. Would you like to try out editing for me? So I literally started working for like one or two bucks an hour. Like if you, if you make the math out, without how much I was making. Um, and I loved it and I felt like I was so lucky and I even felt like an imposter syndrome of being able to make money with it. And that's how it started. And then obviously I realized I could make something out of it and maybe edit for other people. And it was kind of a snowball where I realized, okay, now I have a portfolio of this YouTube where I'm doing stuff for. Let me uh, try to search more people and, and everything. And so that's how it started. Um, for graphic design, I in, in Portugal, which is where I studied, you in high school you have to pick an area of liking. So you have four categories, like four main ones. You have sciences, uh, economy, visual arts, and languages. And I chose art. Um, so I always, like, since then I knew that what I was going to end up doing is something probably related to design because I like the part of digital art. So that's how that happened. But the actual way that I started working on it and started freelancing was actually very natural and weird. Yeah. Isn't that pretty crazy that not that long ago you were making a dollar to two dollars an hour editing for your favorite YouTuber? And then when you edited my first video only a month ago, obviously your price range increased a lot. Um, how does that feel now? Because I think not a lot of people spend time reflecting back on where they were in life and the journey because I think especially with a hustler like you and with people a lot of type a personalities especially people who really love what they do it's always about the next milestone oh how can I get better and David Cho a great artist he calls it the process porn where everything because of the process everything becomes about optimizations and process is great but if everything becomes a process, where's the fun in that, right? So how do you feel now if you can take a moment to reflect back on where you were making a dollar or two every hour to now making an amazing financially independent living as a freelance artist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think because I have like a little bug in my head that I guess it's not like super frequent, but sometimes will be like, oh, it's so easy that I lose all my clients and I stop being able to make this a living or those negative thoughts that come. Um, so that keeps me like very humbled and grateful to see how far I've come in one year. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I felt the imposter syndrome at $1. So I'm obviously going to feel it even more as I start charging more. But I also think that for anyone looking to sell their services, even if it's not artistically related, it's very easy for us to not know how much our work is worth. It's very easy to think that just because we didn't learn it from a college education, 
we don't know anything but the truth is and now maybe i'm going off topic i talk to people that have gone out of college for example in marketing degrees or other degrees and they tell me that for the job they're doing now they had to do an internship and learn 90 percent of things for the job that they didn't even learn in college so it's very important that you kind of do a little bit of market research to know how much you value um but i always have that little bug in my head that knows how I can lose my clients or lose my work. I've gone through phases where I lost a very big client unexpectedly, and then I always ended up being able to get more clients. So it's almost like my workflow is proved at this point, but still, there's always that little chance of something going wrong. And I think because I started being financially independent so young, I really don't want to go back because I'm so happy where I'm at. I think that's what makes me not forget where I was one or two years ago. It's knowing how quick it was makes you feel like it's easier to go away. It's like with my YouTube channel. The fact that it went from 5K to 50K in a month or two makes me feel less stable than if it was a gradual growth throughout this past five years. Yeah, let's talk about the experience. So uh, Naval Ravikan, he's a great thinker that I follow. He's the previous co-founder of Angels List and one of the best angel investors in America. And he talks about his quote is, all best things in life iterate or compound over time, whether mm -hmm. it's investment, relationship, friendship, or YouTube channel, right? Because the first four years, it was steady, steady, doing okay, but nothing impressive. And then bam, you hit that compounds mm -hmm. moment about six months to a year ago. So can you walk us through the journey about to because I, I think your journey is a testimony to Naval's quote of all best things in life they do indeed compound over time yeah that's that's so true in all aspects of life um but i think when you think of compound interest maybe you think of it as a gradual growth like in a relationship trust built gradually or things like that and with me i didn't see the compound compounding i just saw the result after the five years <laughs> right if you want to yeah. see it in that way but it it was an interesting story. I don't know if it's very relevant that I tell it, but I basically, I went to New York for my gap year for three months. And as many reasons as one can have to go to New York, my main reason was I want to make different content, test out different things and possibly see if the channel will grow. And obviously that comes with expectations. So I was filming a lot of videos, publishing a lot of videos. And I wasn't seeing any results. And it wasn't until the last week I was there when I was basically in the process of humbling myself and be like, okay, the channel literally grew zero, quote unquote zero. But you learned so much. You met incredible people. You had this experience. Um, I was even like, maybe this isn't for me. And I'm just being dumb that I'm like, I keep pushing and pushing. And it's proven that it's not going to go anywhere. So maybe I should start something new or whatever. And a video gets starts picking up. I reach 5,000 subscribers. I had about 4,000 something. And I'm like, cool. I reached 5,000 subscribers before I leave. That's so cool. And then the video just keeps growing and it keeps growing. And I start growing 1K, 2K subscribers per day. Um, and every day I think it's going to stop, right? And every day it keeps getting bigger. Um, and in the last, like when I get in the plane to come back to Portugal, I'm opening my phone before I put it on airplane mode. I check the subscribers. I refresh it and it literally hits 10K. And for me, that was such a cool life moment to be in a plane alone going back from my trip where there had been no growth on my YouTube, which is my biggest passion, and then just reaching 10K in that plane. 
Um, and then when I got home in the next weeks, it reached 40K. So it's really like it compounds, but it doesn't mean you're going to see the compound throughout the years. I really love to believe, and it was a lot harder to believe it before, but I always focus on if you work hard enough for enough time, if you quote unquote fail enough times, you're going to get to it. So yeah, that was my journey. And I really like telling it not to brag, but really to show people that if they really like something, if they believe in their work, if they've been doing it for enough time, because it's not like you can work a month and you get instant results or even a year, just, just keep doing it. Just keep doing it consistently. Know that you're doing a good job. Evaluate what you're doing. Ask for feedback. Try to grow, obviously, but just have patience. And I think in the world we're living in, having patience, it's really hard, um, but it's super needed, obviously. Yeah, I think staying consistent in what you do is probably the single most cliche thing ever. But that's how you know it's timelessly true. Like yeah. truth is just truth. Like no iterations of time or nothing will taint the truth. That's what truth means. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think I've been talking to so many influencers and public figures in the show with larger followings. And they all talk about being consistent is the hardest thing to do. Because being consistent isn't just actually producing work. Being consistent means being able to tune out the chatter, the self-doubt, the noises, and being zero focus and tunnel vision on what you do. But you don't, mm -hmm. you don't do that just one day. You don't do that just two days. You don't do that for a week. You do that every single day you wake up. Likewise, I think people forget everyone when they wake up, you have to make a conscious decision that today I want to be a good person. Today, I want to be a good human being with integrity because that's a choice. Right? Of course, some people wake up and make a different decisions out of hatred or trauma. But likewise, I think literally just consistent sounds so easy, but it is the hardest thing to do because there's life circumstances, there's noises, there's doubts, there's mental health issues. So for that, I, I want to take a moment and celebrate your success because you obviously earned it after four and five years of going through that mental fuckery, questioning, doubts, thinking about different alternatives for five years. That's insane amount of time. Yeah, it's, it's what you're saying. Truth is truth. And I think when we really want something, we want to skip those steps. Um, we want to skip the cliches. We don't pay attention to the cliches because the cliches aren't telling us what we would like to hear. But if we just pay attention to the cliches and to the truth, that's where the results are going to be, even if there are instant results. One of the core values that you believe in and you practice is gratitude. You talked about it earlier that you're very grateful as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any sort of a gratitude practices or what do you do day to day or week to week to make sure you're in the best headspace for this podcast for 80 hours of work that you do every single day? Like, do you have any sort of a grounding practice? I think there are two things that ground me. The first one, I'm not sure it's the healthiest because I can see how it could be unhealthy, but it's literally constantly comparing myself to other people in other situations and being, and obviously feeling grateful that I am where I'm at. So like the comparison, but I think comparison isn't the healthiest way to get grateful. So the second thing I do, and this is something my mom teached me when I was younger, is every night I will like literally say things that I'm grateful for and it can be like the most little thing like it was a very sunny day and the sun makes me happy or a bigger thing like my family is healthy just having the habit of every day reminding yourselves of that because days go by so quickly 
especially if you have a bad day, it's so easy for wanting to throw everything apart. And we lose perspective of so many things, so many other realities that people are facing, so many things that we take for granted. And I'm not perfect. I have my days, obviously, but I try to every single day at least think about it um, so that it doesn't go unnoticed. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very common gratitude practice is reciting three gratitude for the day. Right. And then it's funny because I live in LA and you live in Portugal where the rays of sunlight is always hitting us. But sometimes I don't see the light. I don't, I, I don't actually go out. I'm just me, my computer and my phone all day just working, editing or recording. So I think it's, it's really important to take a moment. And that's why it's a grounding practice because it grounds you back into the reality, right? And that's very, very helpful. Quick question. So before we get there, do you have any thoughts on fast fashion? I interviewed a model. Uh, she competed in Asia's Next Top Model, and she's an influencer and a celebrity in Malaysia. And she she did modeling for years. And she's also an environmental advocate, right? She climate change, and she talks about fast fashion has one of the highest textile waste in any other industries. Because fast fashion is about copying small businesses' ideas and then just pumping mm -hmm. out thousands of designs every single day. Uh, so whether you want to go there or not, but I'm just curious for you as a founder of a magazine yourself and who has a keen interest and insight on fashion, do you have any thoughts on fast fashion of today? I think I have not very original thoughts, but I do have them. And again, it's almost that question of feeling responsibility when you're putting yourself out there. We're talking about a subject that is fashion in this example. I remember like even in eighth grade or something hauls making clothing hauls on youtube like what you bought was very popular and i never wanted to do that because i didn't want to promote buying so much stuff and i i still try to do it now where in my lookbooks most of my closet currently is thrifted or for my mom's or my grandma's closet and that mostly happened not just because i'm so sustainable that's just one of the reasons the other reason was we were stuck at home two years ago and I wanted to make cool content. I wanted to get new clothes and I didn't want to go into the shopping mall. So I just started like looking at whatever was in my parents or grandparents' houses and trying to flip it. But I do try in my, even in my lookbooks, either to not mention the bigger brands that I know aren't sustainable if something of that brand appears, not to be fake, but not to be promoting it as well. Because if you think about it, if you're doing a fashion video and you have a shirt from a fast fashion shop that you bought four years ago, if the person loves the shirt, they're not going to be able to buy the shirt. It's not on the shop anymore. So talking about the name of the brand constantly and all of the brands, it's just, it's not going to lead anywhere. So anyways, what I try to do is use thrifted or my grandma's or my mother's clothes on lookbooks, ask about sustainability in my videos to other people in the street style videos. And then when I'm purchasing as an individual and not as um, a content creator, just looking for the options in online thrifted shops like ThreadUp or Vinted, which are very popular right now. It's very easy, very, very easy to get caught up in your, either in the prices of fast fashion or in the trends of fast fashion. And I think if we slowly change our mindset from trends and from prices to the mindsets that maybe our moms had when they were our age, where we, they would buy a piece and it would last them years and years and years, where now you put a t-shirt on the washing machine and it's not good anymore after you wash it two times. It's so annoying. Um, if we focus more on quality over quantity as a, as a generation and we try to go for the secondhand options, it's not very original of me to be saying this, but it's, again, the truth that you can't really cross. 
you talked about generational perspective. And as a generation, we need to move away from fast, trendy, wasteful fashion into sustainable, authentic, quality fashion. Uh, either from your series of interviews that you do with fashion students or your own insights, can you share something that you learned about like what does your current generation think about fashion statements, think about sustainability, thinking about approaching fashion from a more proper, appropriate way rather than the fast fashions in, our, in my generations or older generation? I've seen so many different approaches and so many different patterns. Uh, like in a country, I might interview 50 people and they're all saying where their efforts are from and they're all from fast fashion brands. And if I ask them a question about sustainability, they won't really have anything to say about it. Or if they say, you can see that they're not really practicing it. And then in other contests, or even with fashion students, they know how to sue. So they're going to upcycle their clothes and want to make them more original and things like that. You'll, you'll see a complete different perspective or a complete different meaning given to sustainability. So at this point, I don't think it's fair to say that our generation is very concerned about sustainability because I follow a lot of people that are, so I'm going to see that every day. But then maybe in some places where I've interviewed people, I've seen the opposite. I know sustainability is becoming quote unquote trendy, which is awesome. I know thrifting is becoming very trendy, which is awesome. They're really great trends to have. And I think it's not just the people I'm following. I think our generation is is concerned about the planet and our actions and the repercussions of our actions. But again, I feel like because I go and change environments so much, I can see all of the differences. So I can't really talk in general because I've seen a lot of different opinions and perspectives of people. You have a very constructive view because even as you're saying this, you're in real time aware of your metacognitions in terms of, oh, I live in an echo chamber where everything's an echo chamber. and even your reality is very biased because as you say, you follow a lot of sustainable or conscious people. So I appreciate how nuanced you are as a, especially like I said, for how young that's seriously. And I think as a generations, that's how you should be. You're moving forward on a collective level by being more insightful, by being more conscientious, by being more considerate. And I'm very hopeful because of you, because of other younger folks I've interviewed. And I mean that very wholeheartedly. Um, so in terms of generation, why do you think that fashion always goes back? Because like my mom was a fashion designer. She had a factory in China to working with some of the largest fashion brands. That's why I speak Chinese. I lived in China for six years. One thing she always talks about, because she keeps all the wardrobe she has. I mean, she has a infinite amount of clothes, especially as a designer herself. And she always pulls back the fashion after like five years or 10 years or 15 years because she's older in her 60s. And she always says, Benoit, I'm never going to throw my wardrobe out because I always ask, I was like, mom, sell some. Like they've been the same for however years. They're like, trust me, fashion comes back. And they do. They always come back. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have. But again, I don't think it's just fashion. I think it's so many things in our world are cyclical, even wars, even the economy, other types of arts, maybe food, even there's like this quote from Einstein that's to every action there comes an opposite reaction or something and I'm making a video right now about maximalism so I was studying that this morning and whenever we have something being trendy a couple of years later the opposite is going to be trendy because I I think that's probably because humans get sick of things and tired of things 
relatively easily. So then we just want to move on to the opposite. So it's very interesting because I remember in high school, I was selling a lot of my clothes to buy new ones. And then eventually I realized how much I liked some of my mom's clothes. And I came to this weird realization where I was like, yes, I want to sell my clothes because I want to make money and free space in my closet. But how cool would it be for my kids to wear these clothes, for example, because they will come back. Something that you hate today, you will love again 10 years ago, five years ago. I used to say I would never, ever, ever wear flare jeans or low rise jeans. And now I'm wearing low rise and flare jeans. So it's so obvious and I think it's so funny how we forget about it in so many aspects of our society. When something happens again, we're so surprised where we shouldn't be surprised because so many things are cyclical. But I think it's very interesting because when a new trend appears that used to be trendy a couple of years ago, it has more history and you can upcycle it, you can thrift it. Um, you can hear the stories of the people who used to wear it in the context. Um, I think that's something very interesting about fashion is going beyond the actual clothes. That's pretty deep. The, uh, <laughs> another quote that I reminded me of is, uh, I think it's by Bruce Springsteen. It's one of his songs, but it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think mm -hmm. a lot of times when we, when we look at trends or things that are changing drastically, air quotes, we forget that that's like 5% that's changing. 95% is the same. And as a culture, as history, it's the same. But in terms of every action, there's a reaction. And of course, Einstein's like the most attributable, ubiquitous quote. So who knows if he actually said that, right? But I think even when we look at presidents, right? We went from Trump to Biden. And I think Trump's going to win again in 2024 against a lot of people's liking. But it's very extreme because we went from Obama to, right? Yeah. So I think, as you said, truly, it's not just fashion. It's like almost like a universal thing where... There's always, it's uh, oscillations, right? You always go back and forth. But then I think this swing gets too extreme in a political sense right now because the world is burning down as we speak. But uh, yeah, I never thought about that in terms of why fashion always goes back. But it's not just fashion. It's actually indeed everything in life. Yeah, it's like a pattern that just keeps applying to so many different areas. Part of me used to think that it's just because there's not that much to be invented anymore in fashion because we've done so many things throughout the years. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. There's probably always something new we can make. So I think even if it's brands not having the patience to come up with something stupid enough to be new or just the coolness of having something that we call vintage. So in terms of a cultural difference, right? Because of course... You are fluent in English. I know you talked about your English, but you're very fluent and articulate. But you spend your time in two different cultures, like American culture, because your dad has 20 plus of years in America, but your mom was born in Paris, France, and then you now live in Portugal and back and forth. What's like the biggest cultural difference from your perspective between like Portugal and New York or America, in particular New York? I think a phrase I, I heard that really stood out to me was Americans live to work, Europeans work to live. If you go to anywhere in Europe, or at least to the places I've been, if you go to coffee, a coffee shop, you have tables on the streets and people are talking, um, they're listening, they're yelling, they're loud. If you go to a coffee shop in New York, either they're in their phone or on their computer, people go out in the streets. Some people just so that they can meet and be outside or in New York, everyone is there because they're going somewhere. 
So I think that mindset itself, the, the American dream of making a lot of money and enjoying your life, it's, it's very interesting. I'm, I really like thinking about money and talking about money. And something I notice is in Portugal, we don't have, I would say a majority of people don't have ACs in their houses, which doesn't mean it's not cold or hot. We just don't have it. Um, and then in America, everyone has ACs. And it's funny because for a Portuguese, maybe to think about how much an American makes, it's like everyone's rich. But then if you think about the consumerism in America, it's almost like it's the same proportion what European people make in a lot of countries and how much they're left with at the end of the month is probably as much as the Americans, even if they're making 10 times more. There's such a bigger habit of consuming things and buying things and testing things while here it's not like that. And I think maybe that's why people aren't making as much money. This might be a controversial topic is because we don't have the culture of buying so many things. So we don't feel the necessity of getting so much more. And maybe people are more used to this lifestyle and that's why they spend less time working and enjoying the little things. It's, it's literally the lifestyle. And I think that's very interesting to think about yeah and then you, you're in the intersections of both cultures right you have the workaholism of an american but you live in a cultural containers of europe it's interesting to think about it yeah because i was born in paris but i haven't been back in my adult years but i do know that leisures and mental health and sociality like this real human to human connections in a social setting is very big culturally in europe especially in paris portugal stuff like that um, and I think that's, a, that's so beneficial for the longevity of your health and your mental health, because that's what makes people happy, right? And of course, we've heard this many times, the happiness index is drastically higher in Europe than America, even though the GDP or income level is very, very different, as you said. Yeah, exactly. If in Portugal, you pay 600 euros if you go to a pub. In Portugal, public universities are the ones everyone wants to get in. They're the ones with a higher, uh, like it's harder to get in. So they're the best ones. And you'll pay 600 euros per year to go to college. And obviously, if it was more, people wouldn't be able to afford it. But in America, people have to work so much because otherwise their kids won't be able to go to college. If you think about the proportion, it's maybe it's the same proportion paying 600 euros here with what people make and paying thousands and thousands of dollars for what Americans make. So it's just like people are making so much more, but they have to make so much more. You know what I mean? Yeah, the yeah, tuition in Portugal, you say it's like 600 euros for a year. And in most colleges in the US, it's like $60,000. So that's 10 times the difference between the cost or the expenditure. But sure, Americans make air quotes 10 times more money. But it's all about living quality or quality of living, right? But what do we know? I mean, I'm a former policymaker, but we're not culture experts. We're just yeah. uh, talking about Maya's experience, <laughs> of course. So with that, I wanted to save this for the very end to close out the episode. But as I said in the beginning, you're also a founder of your own magazine, Mayazine, and you call it, it's the magazine from people to people. So to wrap up today's episode, what's like the mission statement and what's the vision and the hopes that you have for your Mayazine? so that you can truly provide values and benefit the people that are interested in fashions or digital art? When I was building this concept, because when I, when I started my YouTube channel, it was a Myazine, it was a lifestyle channel, and I rebranded it to Myazine like six months ago. When I was talking about the concept with my boyfriend, who strongly helped me 
think about what I wanted it to be, put it into words and create something that I believed would last. Um, I knew that I had a passion for fashion, but I didn't just want to focus on clothes. And I wanted, I love a series that I have that is inside the life and closet of blank. So my zine was literally born from my love for art and one of those artistic expressions being fashion, but objects don't say anything, right? What says something is the people that are wearing it, it's the brains. So I, I literally have this phrase that is like, we want to feed your brains or we want to dig inside your brains because that's what's interesting to me. So from people to people is exactly that is going behind the layers, um, talking about culture, talking about um, trends in a cyclic way, talking about how people build their outfits or why they build their outfits, how their mood influences their fashion and trying to make fashion as fun as it is and as great as it is to maybe have watch content that is just entertaining. And even if it's about a more, a more superficial topic, also having a way to go beyond that and not limiting myself to that. As we're definitely coming to the end, Maya, I want to hit you with the hallmark, discover more question. So the question has two folds. Fold one is what is a domain or an area of your life that you want to discover more about? The second fold is what is an area in our listeners' lives that you want to encourage or even challenge to think more about, to discover more about? The first things that came to my mind are actually very much related. Um, I, I don't want to answer the first question with something that is art or work related. So definitely something I think when I'm retired or I have more time, I would love to learn more about is brains, how our minds work, how our behavior works, um, like neuroscience or psychology or sociology, just understanding ourselves as a species better. That is so fascinating to me. And then this, the answer to the second question would probably be also related to brains, which is mental health. It's again, a cliche and maybe because it's a cliche, it's a true. We're dealing with so many mental health issues right now, and maybe it's not new, maybe it's always been like this, but now we're more aware. But I would just encourage everyone to try to be more present with ourselves, maybe journal, um, which I wasn't expecting saying, especially us talking about fashion and work for the whole episode and now me finishing up with mental health. But as many interests as one can have, I think mental health should be in a universal and paying attention to yourself. If you're working too much, paying attention to yourself of what you're doing, how you're feeling, and just being present. I think it's hard to be present, at least for me. Um, so if we take a deep breath and we just appreciate whatever is in front of us, as super cliche as it sounds, um, I think that can prevent a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, obviously, you love to work. So it's not the worst thing for a mental health because you love it. But having some sort of a break or balance would definitely make you sustain what you love for a lot longer. And that's what sustainability is, right? And yeah, hearing about you going through your channel and YouTube rebranding recently after being about lifestyle channel for about four years, that's very comforting to me to hear because I'm also going through a semi reconstructions of my brand right? after three years on audio because I want to make my podcast more mental health centric. Because of course, I'm a clinician in mental health, so that's my expertise. But I always wanted to make my podcast separate from mental health because I do that in my work. And I love it. I love mental health. I love working with patients and clients. I love addressing their emotional issues and trying to solve 
uh, cognitive or emotional problems. That's gives me so much joy. Uh, but I think I want to carry some of that and make this podcast still about nuances and curiosity with a higher focus on mental health. Because mental health, as you say, it's not just an area or a domain. It's a universal theme. Everything you do is about mental health. Your physical health is also a byproduct of your mental health. And that is a fact, uh, scientifically speaking. So yeah, I love what you said. And I think it's very thematic about the episode. So this is where I roll out the red carpet for you, Maya. Where could people connect with you, check out your Maya zine and 14 other things that you do? So you can find me on YouTube at Maya zine, not magazine. You switch the G with an I. Um, then you can find me on Instagram at maya.zine or at maya.tv, I believe. That's where I'm at currently. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and then yeah, to all the listeners, uh, that will be the episode for today. And I hate to do this every single time, but I'm really sprinting hard on YouTube and the analytics shows about 75% of the viewers aren't subscribed and a lot of content creators struggle with this. So if you can really like, like, subscribe, and share this with another friend, it will really fuel me to continue to do this without monetizing the listeners for years to come because I really love podcasting. And with that, thank you for joining on this week's train of Discover More. Uh, focus on your mental health, find something that you love like Maya and just do that for a long time. And I think that's the best way to keep us fulfilled in this limited time that we have on this earth. And with that, I will include all the show notes in the episode descriptions and again, and as always, hope to see you again next time in the next week's train of Discover More.